This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about technology that affects all of us in a format that allows you to consume it in the time it takes to go to and from the grocery store. I'm your host, Lou Covey, and I probably know more about it than you do. And if I don't, I know someone who does. But first... Hello, folks. Welcome back to Crucial Tech. This is Lou Covey, your host, and I've got um, a special uh, episode for you today. We're going to talk about nuclear war and cyber war, um, because that's something that's that's in everybody's head right now because of what's going on in the Ukraine. I want to give you a little bit of background about uh, what I've done in the past. Uh, I have written about all kinds of technologies. And one of the things that I've done way back is I used to work in the military industrial complex and worked in a failure analysis division of uh, Lockheed missiles in space, uh, where we worked on the Trident II uh, nuclear missile program, which is the submarine-based missiles. And one of the things I learned, and I can talk about this now because it, this was more than 20 years ago and and, and a lot of the secrets have gone past, uh, but Russian nuclear missiles, in particular the ICBMs, were all not all that great. In fact, um, the the U.S. Navy. Now, this may surprise you. The U.S. Navy has a acceptable failure rate for their nuclear missiles, their, their submarine nuclear missiles, of fifty percent. That means half of them won't work. Either they won't come out of the tubes or they'll blow up in the tubes or they'll blow up uh, before they even reach anything. It, it, just all different kinds of things go into it. Uh, but the Russian acceptable failure rate at that time was 90%. And the reason it was that high is because they used liquid fuel and liquid fuel is highly unstable and unreliable. Sometimes it'll go off, sometimes it'll really go off and not the way you want it to. So there was this thing in my head of saying, well, why are we that so concerned about it? Now, yes, if, if one of those things happened to get through, uh, it would be bad, but 90% of them won't even get that far. And the thing is, they had a 75% failure rate on the deployment of the warheads. So there was like a 2% chance that there would be any destruction whatsoever. That's not a good reason. And that's kind of reason why they have so many of these uh, weapon systems is because the failure rate is so high. These are really highly technical things that no one's ever done before. So that's always been in my head. And when this thing with Ukraine started and we started seeing what, the, the Russian military was really like. Like I was just reading this morning, we heard about that story about how the Ukrainians stopped the Russian column from advancing from the north. And But we were short on details. And the story just came out today in the, in the Independent that that column was stopped by 30 guys on quad bikes who were, who were using homemade drones equipped with one and a half pound bombs. <laughs> and they stopped the column. And then when the column decided to split up and avoid these guys, they just split up and continued stopping these columns all over the place. That's how the Ukrainians stopped this incredible, frightening war machine, which apparently wasn't all that frightening. Now, through all of this stuff, and I'm thinking about this, a guy pops up in my feed, 
Ian Thornton Trump, who is the chief information officer for uh, Ian, how do you pronounce that? It's Sijax. Sijax. Okay. Yeah. Every once in a while, I look at these things. How do you say that? Okay. So <laughs> it's so Sijax, and uh, he made a comment that he didn't think that this thing that we're all terrified of that the Russians are going to launch a cyber attack on the West. Now, in truth, there has been an uptick in attempted breaches. But it seems like because we were so afraid of it and we started telling people you better be prepared for us, that we were actually prepared and these cyber attackers from Russia weren't all that good. And so I decided to call or give a, a note to Ian and say, hey, you want to expand on this? And boy, did he. And <laughs> he sent me quite a few lists and even a white paper that we're going to make available at Cyber Protection Magazine. So, Ian, I want to thank you for joining us and tell me, why do you think it's not all that big a deal to be uh, for uh, what do you think the Russian cyber attack capabilities is not that big of a deal? Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, it's interesting to kind of look at it from uh, the practicality lens first, which is. Um, Russians have internal problems at home right now, big anti-war movement beginning to see dissension against the powerful figures. They have a propaganda and information war that they're losing to the Ukrainians badly. Um, I would say one of the actual practicalities is the two or three uh, cyber attacks that they did try to launch specifically on Ukrainian targets were really kind of intercepted, reverse engineered in record time by um, Western technology companies like Microsoft. When, when they tried to launch a, a wiper attack um, against national critical infrastructure in Ukraine within a matter of hours, Microsoft had figured out uh, how to detect it and how to stop it. So, so I think, you know, when you look in the context of what the Russians have done in the past, um, especially with the global cyber attack that everybody points at, you know, the, the wanna cries and the, uh, uh, and the bad rabbit and not Petya attacks that they launched, essentially with using the shadow brokers ill-gotten gains of real espionage tools, NSA malware, uh, Eternal Blue and Double Pulsar. You look at kind of how the Russians have conducted themselves from an offensive cyber perspective and it's, there really doesn't seem to be anything interesting or significant. Um, they're good at espionage, no question about that. They got into solar winds when they pivoted off of solar winds into some very sensitive US government accounts. Uh, no question that they're, they have um, capability. But it seems in this particular conflict, they didn't wanna draw the ire of NATO and the EU combined and start having it out with a cyber war um, and targeting each other's national critical infrastructure. And this is mostly, I think, because for years, the head of NATO has basically gone on the podium and said, we will consider Article 5 if there's a destructive, significant destructive cyber attack launched by an aggressive nation. And they just kind of left it at that. That left open the kinetic response that NATO could bring to bear if they were to suffer an attributable cyber um, attack from Russia. So I think, you know, we actually have 
on the cyber battlefield, detente comrade. Um, because <laughs> I don't think, you know, that type of clash of arms, which essentially um, brings the conflict onto a global scale, um, is really in the interests of, of Russia. And after the mauling that the Russian army has has uh, has been hit at. And there's so many great examples. I mean, you got the one about the, the nerds on quad bikes with their drones. Um, there's many other examples of local indigenous forces armed with, you know, a half a dozen anti-tank rockets holding off a, a Russian armored column that was trying to get into their village. And now, you know, we see the final stages of this, of this three-act play. Uh, the retreat um, is not going particularly well. Uh, the Ukrainian forces are now moving into previously occupied positions. And I mean, to just sort of bring it to, to sort of an observation of mine is the fact that some general or colonel somewhere decided to dig in in a radioactive forest, which would have been marked on every map. Do not go in there. Civilian map, military map, whatever. Do not go in there. Highly radioactive. Okay, like those yellow kind of terrible symbols that you see on on every post Holocaust movie, right? Like, do not dig. Um, and and so you know we have a situation now where it clear it, it's clear that a conscripted army um, is just not even up to any sort of basic NATO standard. And I think. It's fair to say on the cyber side, with the capabilities that the NSA and, and GCHQ here in the UK and that the other nations have developed, um, it could push Russia back to the Stone Age in terms of technology. And that's not even going uh, full um, crazy, which the Americans could do by the issuing of national security letters or just asking uh, Western technology companies to make life difficult for the Russians, Google would have the capability of turning off every Android phone in Russia. So, you know, let's not underestimate the capabilities that Western tech has, which has a frightening implication mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, because the Germans teased out that um, they felt, and maybe they had intel, maybe they didn't, but they felt that Kaspersky's antivirus could be used to conduct such a global cyber attack under orders from the Russian government. Um, that brought up the specter of the fact that tech can be used by governments in a wartime scenario to be incredibly uh, effective on the battlefield and incredibly effective um, in terms of undermining um, an aggressive nation state. So I think we're seeing a couple of really interesting uh, trends that I'm hoping that we get the chance to talk uh, more about. One of the things that I've wondered about is that you know, the, the Russian cyber capabilities are highly reliant on freelancers, essentially. People that the Russian government uh, will either pay directly or uh, uh, look the other way when they're stealing massive amounts of money and cryptocurrency from people. But with the sanctions, they don't have that kind of money to spend. And true. my guess is that one of the reasons that the crypto or the, the cyber war hasn't started is because they've pretty much lost their their cyber army. 
Well, I, I, they're I think mercenaries. When, I think when we look back, we certainly saw with the attacks on Georgia that it was pretty much a revolving door between Russian cyber criminals and the Russian government. Yeah. And I would say that certainly over time, uh, there's been that continued cozy relationship between uh, organized crime in Russia, cyber criminals, and then uh, occasionally arresting someone that's shown really good talent and deciding that they should be part of you know, the GRU or FSB and work on behalf of the nation state. Um, so, so certainly, I think you're right there. But I also think that um, the the espionage mission that the Russians had been training for um, and been conducting throughout the globe at global targets um, was was their forte. And the idea of trying to code sophisticated malware that can cause um, that can cause, you know, mass um, destruction of computer systems. That's that's a whole new next level. Um, it's not as easy as it sounds, because if it was, um, you know, our operating systems would be notoriously unstable from all the from all the criminal uh, elements. I think when I think of Russia right now with the FSB and the uh, GRU, the Russian army capabilities, um, they're trying to do their very best now to um, cover the retreat, as it were, and try to win the information war. And we've seen time and time after again, they they started to DDoS uh, the Ukrainian uh, infrastructure with a bunch of compromised uh, routers. Um, that was discovered and shut down, and all the IOCs were quickly given to the Ukrainians to defend. We saw them use a couple of different types of wiper malware. And within hours, various EDR vendors and Microsoft themselves uh, had the solutions out there for those for those attacks. So, you know, it, it's going almost as well as the Russian offensive, or as the joke trending on Russian social media is, we're in day, what, 43 of the two-day plan to conquer the Ukraine. <laughs> um, and so I think from a cyber perspective, you know, it's, it's going about as equally well. Now, you bring up a, a, some interesting points there, and this is something else that I've kind of been wondering about. We have been screaming as an industry, and I'm including myself in the cybersecurity industry now for because you know, I've been covering this stuff for about five or six years. It, that, that you have to get ready for this. You have to be prepared. And I almost think that it's turned out that we actually were. I think that I mean, it's we, fair we, we to could, say. We could be better, but I think our defenses have actually shown themselves to be existent. I would definitely say that, um, at, especially at the enterprise companies, I think, you know, the data breaches of um, the meat um, company, Colonial Pipeline, SolarWinds, really set up a tempo of large impactful data breaches that inconvenienced people, mm -hmm. uh, majorly uh, inconvenienced people and majorly embarrassed the government in terms of cybersecurity. And I think that was preparatory. I also think that um, companies that were told, you know, you need to shore up your cyber defenses, um, you know, and the level of investment that the United States and other Western nations have put in terms of government effort programs, et cetera, uh, pressure from insurance companies uh, for their clients to have a certain minimum level of cyber hygiene uh, has started to pay off. 
But I guess what disappointed me the most was the attitude of some information security vendors to try and capitalize and warmonger for Russian global cyber war, somehow forgetting the, you know, anywhere from um, years to months lead time that is required to get a product in front of a customer, get it deployed and get it operational. Yeah. So even though the government said, you know, we have to shore up our defenses, nobody is going to be able to go out and buy a solution to protect their global enterprise and deploy it in weeks. <laughs> That's yeah. just not realistic. So, so I think the messaging is there. I think companies realize that they're all part of an ecosystem that really is about uh, behavioral norms on the internet with, with big tech being the heavyweights. Like if Google says that you don't exist as a brand, you're not going to exist, right? Um, and so I think we've now realized that, that you know, like any sort of tool that the internet is, it has a, a positive aspect to it, but it also uh, has a, a negative aspect to it. Okay. Do you think that half the battle of being protected on the cyber world is just being aware that you can be attacked? I think at the executive level of an organization, yes. But you can't just go in there with a passionate argument. You have to come in with facts and figures, right? right. So you go to something like the Verizon Data Breach Report. as It says, people in our industry vertical were hit this way by these type of threat actors, and these were the type of attacks that they were, um, that they were using on us. Here's our spend, here's our security controls, and I've identified these two or three or five key areas, according to our heat map of our maturity, of where we need to make an investment to sort of like fight off these attacks. At the same time, though, we're into a scenario where companies are rapidly doing digital transformation which has changed the paradigm completely from, you know, building a bigger moat, building bigger castle walls to protect your infrastructure. Now it seems that the most important thing that you have on, uh, in terms of your asset on your company is your, um, is your identity and access management, right? Everybody's been screaming for multi-factor authentication as being the solution for, especially in the cloud hosting and the area era of cloud hosting and software as a service applications. Mm -hmm. And honestly, now I think we're going to get to the point, and I've started to see some um, some action from California, some action from the New York uh, Department of State Financial uh, Office, also from the Small Business Administration and the FTC that whenever a company is being fined um, for, you know, egregious cybersecurity, uh, lack of cybersecurity controls, multi-factor authentication is coming to the forefront. And so, you know, this is sort of one of those things that if, if I had to pick one thing to do today within my organization is have zero tolerance for any uh, system that we can't protect by multi-factor authentication or figure out how to put multi-factor authentication in front of it. Because those are the type of things that do ward off serious cyber attacks and serious repercussions for your brand. And of course, the protection of your of your own data. Okay, I'm actually working on the story right now that I hope to get out this week. Maybe you want to comment on this as well. Um, governments are, found, at least in the West, governments are finally getting 
serious about cybersecurity legislation. Yeah. Uh, we've got Senate Bill 3600, uh, which actually is three separate bills, and one of them is the Cybersecurity Reporting Act. And I've kind of made the snarky comment that this bill actually brings us up to the level of the EU in 2016. Uh, but the EU is also upgrading their own cybersecurity reporting standards, which used to be just for governments and crucial infrastructure issues and now expanding it everywhere. So the fact that governments are finally figuring this out, is that actually helping us move the needle on getting companies to pay attention to their own security? It is. I think, I think it's a very powerful um, message. I think they could do a lot more. Um, you know, the first issue around reporting is it should be a data breach, not necessarily sensitive personal information, because, you know, you can lose billions of dollars in intellectual property uh, without a single customer record or employee record being stolen. So data breaches in general need to be reported, not just ones with personal um, personal sensitive information, right? Like we, we came across these data breaches like Equifax and Marriott and OPM in the United States, and this was all personal sensitive data, right? And so everyone started to align data privacy rules. There's 52 of them in the United States, uh, one for each state. Um, and, and it's a complex mess of different regulations right. applying in different contexts. So moving that up to a national level is exactly what the EU did. We had 27 essentially fiefdoms of data protection security in the EU. And that wasn't, um, that wasn't adequate to have, you know, to basically have global brands uh, conducting, you know, their uh, best practices 27 different ways. So I think it's amazing. I think the last thing, you'll, and this is the shoe I really want to drop, is that we need to figure out how to incentivize security um, better and more effectively. So I and myself and a number of other people have calling for cybersecurity investment should be a tax deduction against the revenue of the business at a certain percentage, right? So if you're doing a billion dollar turnover and you spend 5 million or 10 million or whatever you want to agree is going to be the number, uh, then that needs to be a deduction against your corporate taxes. And I think if you did that, you would actually well, do two things. Well, wait, wait, to, is, yeah. Isn't it already? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, because the thing is, it's considered a business expense. So yeah. you can you can write it off as a business expense. So are you talking about doing it more than that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, to, to the point where it's. So you're actually talking about tax credits then? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I wasn't 100% clear because, yeah. of course, if you buy X and it's part of your business, it's a business expense. Yeah. But I'm saying, yeah, a, a bonus against your corporate taxes uh, or a tax credit um, it would be amazing. And there'd be a couple of great things that would come out of that. First of all, you'd stabilize the tech industry, right, mm. um, across across the board. Uh, the second thing is, is businesses would be more protected, which has a bottom line. And this is the, the, the dirty secret, I think, for the Western economies, right? They can't completely get rid of cybercrime because there's a giant $400 billion a year business yeah. in the protection of cybercrime. But the next best thing would be to feed and sustain that industry by some sort of tax credit regime 
uh, in order to protect the growth potential of your own economy. So it sort of becomes a snake eating its own tail in that you put money in at one side and tax credit incentives for cybersecurity, you protect the ability of your economy to grow and protect you know, national critical infrastructure and that engine that powers your economy. So I think, you know, obviously I'm not an actuarial person. I'm not, you know, a, 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 an accountant that works at government and country and, and economists, but I think that's a model worthy of consideration uh, because so far, um, it, it doesn't seem to be working that well, but you know we'll see um, because there's some really interesting data that came out in the latest IC3 report. So the IC3 report is the FBI collects stats on all of the cyber crime and in cyber enabled crime, right? Mm -hmm. Now there is always going to be prejudice about you know reporting it to the feds, and so you're right. I think there needs to be a national report your cyber crime uh, incentivization or law. But the data that came out of that was startling in that business email compromise is the number one threat, cyber threat, that an, organiza an organization faces. And by right. far and away responsible for the most amount of money lost. This is somewhat disappointing if you're trying to shout at customers that ransomware is the biggest threat out there when it's clearly not. No, it's and, not. And so... We do have a bit of a problem with what the government policymakers' perspective of the cybercrime problem is. And the man on the street, the woman on the street, their small business cybercrime, there, there's a big delta, I think, between what the government believes is going on and what the experience of businesses is. And I think that national reporting would give us, uh, would get us closer to the truth of what's going on. When we were talking about setting this up, you actually uh, came up with a, a four-point plan that you wanted to see people get behind, at least governments at all. What What is that plan? Well, it's a great segue from your, we should be have a national law to report cybercrime, yeah. because what it is, is it's four Ds to success against any sort of cyber attack. doesn't necessarily have to be Russia, but it's disrupt, destroy, degrade, and deceive. So the idea here is that their threat actor is going to perform a number of activities against your business. And right. what you need to do is disrupt them early in that attack phase, right? Based on your risk models. The next thing is once you've identified an attack is taking place, get on the phone to those providers, the big providers, the, the hosting companies, the domain registrars, and get that infrastructure taken down right away as soon as you identify those uh, the IOCs of, of the attack, right? Mm -hmm. Degrading the effectiveness is education and awareness, which I think, you know, if we look at what we talked about in this, in this um, uh, podcast, I'm actually really excited about the point that you made is that I think the whole scenario, especially the run up to and then the government warnings that came out about Russian cyber has pushed that awareness up into the boardrooms and into the decision makers. So, you know, um, degrading is all about making people aware of the threat and making sure that they have a plan to deal with that threat if it's realized. And I think deceive is is the is the one that I'm most excited about. And that's where you get to deploy things like honeypots on your network and detection, uh, intrusion detection response. So it's more around the technical controls, but it's sure satisfying 
to see a threat actor trying to brute force their way into a system that you uh, that you know has no valuable data on it, and you're just laughing at their attempts, and then you're gathering all the telemetry, all the IP addresses they're using, all the domains that they're using to get into this fake portal or whatever you put up there on the internet, remote desktop or VPN server, and you're just gleefully passing that you know that intel to you know your threat intelligence providers or you know you know your your uh, your cybersecurity team and you know they're blocking them as quickly as they're attacking so i really like the idea of, of bringing deceptive uh, cybersecurity into the mix Okay, well, I think that's a good way to wrap this up. Uh, Ian, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we will be talking to you again soon, I can imagine. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on this show. Well, that was, I would say, definitively the best interview we've had this year. Uh, in, that, in, in that it was so much more positive than a lot of the other things we seem to uh, talk about. Uh, I, I would like to uh, make a caveat. This doesn't mean there is no threat, either to nuclear war or to a major cyber attack on our infrastructure. But the fact is that we are better prepared for it now than we were six months ago. And that's uh, based on the fact that the government has gotten serious about this, that businesses have gotten serious about this, and that we as individuals are becoming more aware of the potential threat. That's all good news. Uh, and I want to thank Ian for his time today. Uh, it looks like we're going to get him back again soon because he's is a wealth of information. Uh, that has been it uh, for this week on Crucial Tech. I'm Lou Covey, your host. If you have any questions or comments, go to cyberprotection-magazine.com and you can leave a comment there uh, uh, along with where we publish this podcast. Uh, or you can go to anchor.fm uh, slash Crucial Tech and you can leave a one-minute uh, comment or question there and uh, we will uh, probably feature you in an upcoming show. Stay safe out there, folks. Stay alert, and we'll come out of this better than we expected. Thanks for listening. This has been a Footwasher Media production. <laughs>